Hello and welcome to Arts Talk Radio. I'm Michael Hasted. We bring you interviews as well as news and reviews relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, concentrating on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and everything in between or nearby. Arts Talk Radio Online. Features on the arts in English. It's all about comedy this week. Later, Amsterdam-based comedian Greg Shapiro will be reading the final excerpt from his book An American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. But to start, we have a guest in the studio, Mr Stephen Grindle, who's also known as Dinglefingle and Baron von Grindle. What's all that about, Stephen? Mm, um, confused identities, maybe. Because you're basically a clown. I am a clown. <laughs> but I, I, technically, I'm a physical theatre performer. But most of my work is based in the clown area. Also, the vampire area, whereby it contrasts the clown. I never work two characters together. But, uh, yeah, essentially, that's what I do. I create characters that are believable, usually with a sense of humour. And you're, you're based in Holland. You live in Holland. Is there much demand for English clowns in Holland? Uh, not really, no, no, not enough. Actually, I don't want to be working too much here. I don't want to be working too much at all. I'm actually technically a house husband, so I'm looking after my wife here, um, run my business. I've moved from the fast-paced clowning life that I used to live, concentrated it down more. So really now I only do the jobs I want to do. Um, go back to England now and again to do jobs, go to Abu Dhabi to do jobs. On the whole... Um, I'm happier in my work now because I've, I'm not pushing the boat out every day. So I become more concentrated in what I do when I do it, uh, which has been wonderful. But uh, yeah, based in Delft, just down the road from Delft, a place called Delia. Wonderful little utopia. Of a and how long have you been in Holland? Six years now. And how did you get started in clowning? Um, as my sister put it, you've always been doing it. Hmm. <laughs> you just got a job and started getting paid yeah, for yeah. what you've always done. Um, so I decided to um, basically become a clown. There was a period in my life where I was sick and a little boy and there was a clown on the TV and I saw the clown and thought he can make any world he wants. He can go anywhere, play with anything. He can create anything he wants. What a wonderful life. I want to be a clown. I must have been nine, eight, nine. Oh, I must tell my mum and dad. I must tell my mum and dad. But I'd forgotten all about it until I was sick when I was 19 in Blackpool and I was very poorly. And then all of a sudden this dream came to me and it was me lying on the sofa looking at the clown, remembering, oh, I must tell my mum and dad. Oh, I must tell my mum and dad. So I basically, obviously being in Blackpool, um, had a look at the Tower Circus and thought, no, oh, I don't want to do that. But I bought a unicycle. So this unicycle was my portal into the world of circus. I finished college, hitchhiked home. When I got there, my friend had posted me a clipping of the call-up for the clowns for the Blackpool Tower Circus. How ironic. So I'm down in Evesham, where I grew up, all the way back to Blackpool to study clowning for a week under Grimble and Norman Barrett, who you'll know. I didn't get the job at the end of the week. Um, it was very sad, like clowns can be sometimes. So I went home, tail between legs. I taught myself to juggle. I could always ride a unicycle. I thought, well, hang on a minute, I'm not giving this up. It's too much fun. So I went to Gandhi's and I knocked on Gandhi's door and I said, I can shovel shit like anybody else. Please give me a job. And Philip said, yep, OK, you start in, I think it was Leyland. And so that Christmas, 
I went to Leyland and he said, yeah, you've got a job next season, come back. And then and it kind of all went from there. Mm. <laughs> I haven't stopped since. The Vampire Act came about because I was working at Chessington World of Adventures and they uh, needed a character devising. And they actually said, can you think of a character to launch our vampire ride? And I went, yeah, a mummy. And they went, eh? I mean, I'm joking. It's got to be a vampire. So build me a frame so I can hang upside down like a vampire would hang upside down and I'll come do all your exhibitions with you to promote the park and this new ride. So I did all the publicity for that and uh, and that's where the vampire started. So the two kind of merged at Chessington World of Adventures, the clown and the ability to uh, create new characters came from there. Because I think you do um, several, you've got several acts, you do a thing with the car, yeah. uh, which you go around and do uh, no country fairs, that sort of thing. Correct. And you do the vampire thing. How, how, where, where do you do the vampire normally? Well, anywhere. I've done it at children's parties. I've um, done it in, obviously, nightclubs, corporate events, private events. The Dorchester Hotel, uh, there was a table of ten and I had to come in and basically walk around and... I wouldn't call it entertain. I would probably call it... Frightened. That one. Yeah, which I, which I did. And uh, so... Where else has a vampire worked? Or just all sorts of weird places. Um, I've worked for, for companies where they've had uh, blood transfusion units and they've been selling <laughs> blood transfusion units. That was in Greece. Um, yeah, all, all, all over the world, really. Um, but you must have had, a, like everybody else, a fairly hard time for the last couple of years with, with COVID. Luckily, I was the houseman that I said I am. So my wife was earning the money. Uh, had I have been in the entertainment business full-time and I was the, the breadwinner, then yes, I would have had a really hard time. Friends of mine um, kept going, but they're, because they've been in the business a long time, you know, their, their bank accounts could sustain them, hopefully they'd saved, could sustain them through this time. Any new people coming into the business were, were you know, had to go and get work elsewhere because they, had, they hadn't earned any money. So for me... I was very uh, depressed at my friend's situation. My situation, I was okay because, like I say, I'm a houseman. I really felt for the whole circus industry, the theatre industry, the entertainment industry. It was just terrible. Arts Talk Radio Online. I'm with Stephen Grindle, the clown, and uh, we've been talking about life as a clown. And there's one thing about being a clown, which I don't know if it's occurred to you or happened to you, that there are some people who find clowns really scary. And, of course, you don't help that if you go out as, go out as Dracula. <laughs> but that's the fascinating thing. If, if I find somebody scared of the vampire, they won't be scared of the clown. But if somebody's scared of the clown, they won't be scared of the vampire. It seems to be a fairly recent thing. I mean, I was never aware of this before, but in the last few years, people have said to me, oh, I find, I find clowns really scary. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a great publicity stunt for people as well. And as far as the clown spectrum goes, uh, there is no right and there is no wrong. So it can go from the gory clown all the way through to the happy, you know, light of day clown. Um, and for me, with the coulrophobia, the fear that has been instilled into people, uh, especially younger people, because their their fathers and mothers have seen it and have told them, "Oh, clowns, ooh, you know, spooky, spooky," and and it gets passed on. 
So when I meet people and I say, they say, oh, I'm a clown, and they say, oh, by the way, Stephen Grindle's not the clown, Dingle Fingle's the clown. It's all, oh, what's Dingle Fingle? Well, it's a clown. Oh, I don't like clowns. So immediately they, they, they have no basis to judge it on because they actually haven't seen what I do. It's a broad generalisation that's been brought to people's minds. And although some people think it's unhealthy, I think it's quite a healthy thing because it brings the context of clown to the front. So you immediately have opinion of it. It's something you know about. That opinion can be changed. And I've met people um, who have said, look, you know, keep away from me. I know you're a clown when you've got your makeup on. Just keep away from me. I'm scared. So I was doing a job for a TV programme. I walked up to the front of the house to get into the, the party. It was a fun day. And I walked up and this man just ran off. And the two security guards... You, you were in costume. I'm in costume, yeah. And I've walked literally through the entrance carrying my bags. And this man, before I got to the entrance, ran off. And these other two blokes, the other two security guards are laughing at him. And they said, oh, don't worry, mate. He's just scared of clowns. So, OK, no problem. I'll keep away. Ha, ha, ha. They laughed. So later on... And he kept out of my way and I kept out of his way just out of mutual respect. He was generally scared of clowns. So later on, um, I was out of makeup and, and this man was stood at the door. So it goes this deep. I had no makeup on. I was dressed in civvies. I stood there. I turned around to him. He looked at me and just went, oh, he knew it was me. And he saw this shiver and he ran again. It's very strange. You can understand it to a certain extent. But I think in this day and age, I think all, all clown acts are basically um to a great or less degree violent um but i can i can i can understand people freaking out at the makeup yeah it is it is a strange thing like with dolls some people will have it with dolls too yeah or or spiders or you know i think it's not i think it's not knowing what's behind the mask what what's behind there and also with a clown thing you never know what they're going to do because it is anarchic it is an anarchic art sure which is uh playing on people's premises of what they believe or don't believe Mm. Um, like with the comedy car, you said it's violent. Sorry, like, like you mentioned about the comedy car earlier, the Clown Town Crime Watch. It's based on the old Keystone Cops slapstick stunt show. So, you know, you get stuff wrong, it does hurt. People will laugh whether you hurt yourself or not. As long as it's funny, they don't really care whether you hurt yourself. So, yes, that, that violence, that, that uh, uh, mock fighting, the, the, the slapstick, hardcore slapstick stuff, or even the soft slapstick stuff like falling off a chair, people will go, oh, you were all right. If they don't know you're in that clown persona, but if they know that you're in that clown persona, it's okay for you to laugh because you've put yourself in that clown persona. And another thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, the logistics. You say you're not doing much now, but with your, do you have your own car? I mean, you must have a shed full of props and stuff. <laughs> I used to have. I cleared it all out before I moved to Holland. Um, my comedy cars and quad is stored in a trailer in Scotland at, at my partner's place. He has a big um, ten-bedroom hotel that he. Uh, as a little bistro in and whatnot, so whilst um, whilst bringing it over to Holland wouldn't be feasible because there's no work over here particularly. Over there, it's his job to drive it, so I will fly to London, Birmingham, Bristol, wherever, and he will meet me there. So once or twice every year, I'll go over, and we'll have a little practice, we'll make the car good or add something new to the car or change the act a little bit, um, and just generally keep it honed. So that when I get there, everything's ready to go. We get to the showground, unpack, do the shows, pack it back up, pick up the check. 
he goes one way, I go the other. Mm. So, uh, How much do you think circus has changed um, in your life? I mean, when I was a kid, there were three really big circuses. There was Chibfields, there was Bertram Mills and um, Billy Smart. Mm-hmm. And they were really big shows. They would come around regularly every year. The elephants would march through town and everything else. And now there are no permanent big circuses. But there's a lot of small ones, like Giffords. I mean, how, how do you find, in general, that circus life has changed in the last 30, 40 years? Massively. The animals were, for me, a very special element. TV was so small back in those days, and to see a live show and see all those animals, smell them, watch the bees artists, and then see the clowns diffuse everything. You'd see things you'd never seen before, but now you've seen everything on the internet or television. Because you've just got to go onto YouTube and have a look. Yeah. Stephen Grindle, also known as Dinglefingle and Baron von Grindle. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you for having me, Michael. Shapiro here with a preview of my third book, The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. In this episode, it's time for Chapter 3, Pulp Fiction, The Rewrite. The quote, You know what the funniest thing about Europe is? It's those little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there that we got here, but it's just there, it's a little different. Quentin Tarantino via John Travolta. Now, for many English speakers around the world, it's like everything I needed to know about Amsterdam I learned from that one scene in Pulp Fiction. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, talking about the hash bars, the coughs in Amsterdam, and frites with mayonnaise. Ew. I still remember... The thrill of watching Pulp Fiction in 1994 at the Criterion Cinema. The sneak preview. For the crew of the Boom Chicago Comedy Theater, Tuesday night was sneak preview night. Because in the Netherlands, the films would always premiere on a Wednesday. Meaning, the actual film reels in their canisters would have to be delivered to the cinemas to be premiered. Now, if the film reels would arrive a day early, that's what they would show on the Tuesday night for the sneak preview. Sometimes it would be a Danish film with Dutch subtitles, and we'd be out of luck. But sometimes it would be a Hollywood movie like The Fugitive with Dutch actor Jeroen Krabbe, not too shabby. So imagine our surprise when not only... Was it the much-hyped Pulp Fiction, as we'd been hoping? But there was an entire scene about life in Amsterdam. There was John Travolta on the big screen saying, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean, like, no paper cup, neither. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And there I was in a movie theater in Amsterdam with a glass of beer. It was like, whoa, He's talking to me. Now, I watched Pulp Fiction again recently, and I realized 
There is new meaning to that quote about the little differences. Those little differences between the U.S. and Europe are now pretty big differences. But even bigger are the differences in the Netherlands between 1994 and the Netherlands now. In fact, if Quentin Tarantino would remake Pulp Fiction today, the dialogue would have to be somewhat different. For example, 1994. So tell me again about the hash bars in Amsterdam. Rewrite. So tell me again about the coffee shops in Amsterdam. Hash bars? No. Coffee shops? Yes. In Amsterdam, hash bars are called coffee shops because in the late 1960s, there was a certain cafe with a certain regular patron who was certain to sell you marijuana if you knew to use the term coffee shop. Then came hash bars, known as coffee shops. Now, the fact that they chose an English language term makes me think that the first customer was definitely British. And the original coffee shop was actually called Mellow Yellow, and it was forced to close in 2017. Legend has it, Quentin Tarantino used the term coffee shop in the first draft of his screenplay, but Americans were so confused, he had to change the term to hash bar. But hey, American terminology is not much better. In America, a common term for pharmacy is drugstore. In Amsterdam, you can watch tourists ask, where's the drugstore? And then watch as they are directed to the coffee shop. Dialogue from 1994. You can't just go into a restaurant and start puffing away. I mean, they want you to smoke it in your home or certain designated places. Now, since 2007, Dutch non-smoking laws include both restaurants and the certain designated places known as coffee shops. If Pulp Fiction were remade today, the dialogue would have to be a little bit different. Rewrite. They want you to smoke it in your home or in certain designated places. And the designated places are called coffee shops. Now, technically, the designated places are smoking rooms inside the coffee shops. What, you can't smoke inside the smoke shop? The only way you can smoke is if they have a smoking area. A smoking area? Yeah, you know. It has to be a specially constructed, hermetically sealed smoking area inside the coffee shop, you know, to protect all the people who don't smoke. What are you doing in a coffee shop if you don't smoke? I don't know. I don't know. 1994, hash is legal, but it ain't 100% legal. In fact, hash in the Netherlands is 100% illegal. But Dutch police chose to decriminalize marijuana since it is a soft drug. Rewrite, hash has never been legal. It's just that soft drugs are tolerated. Soft drugs like mushrooms? Not exactly. Since 2008, you can get some kinds of mushrooms, but not the good ones, like dried mushrooms. Well, what if I buy the mushrooms and dry them myself? No one does that. Why not? Because all you got to do is ask for truffles. 1994, get a load of this. If the cops stop you in Amsterdam, it's illegal for them to search you. That's a right the cops actually don't have. A rewrite. Oh, yeah, it's different since 2001. After 9-11, the cops can now search you whenever they want. Damn. And if they search you, you better have a valid ID. 
with the government-approved photo on it, or you can be arrested. It's like back in Germany. You have to have your papers, and your papers must be correct. 1994, it breaks down like this. It's legal to buy it, it's legal to own it, and if you're the proprietor of a hash bar, it's legal to sell it. <clears throat> Rewrite. If you're the proprietor of a hash bar, it's legal to sell it. But since 2012, it's only legal to sell it if your coffee shop is beyond 250 meters of a school. Well, what if it's not? Then they'll shut you down like they did the first ever coffee shop called Mellow Yellow. Oh, because it was too close to a school? Well, the school is no longer a school. It's actually now a health club. And your coffee shop can't be too close to the border with Belgium. And you have to check the passports of all your clientele to make sure there are no tourists. No tourists? Who exactly is smoking this hash? Mostly tourists. Why would you keep the people out of the hash bar who are the only people who want to go to the hash bar? But it's still legal to buy it. It's legal to own it. Is it legal to grow it? No. Well, where does the hash come from then? I don't know. Hash fairies? But they're going to make it legal, right? They got to make hash legal. Actually, hash is right now more legal in America than it is in the Netherlands. You've got to be smoking something to believe that. So, in conclusion, since 1994, those little differences are indeed a little different. This is Greg Shapiro reading The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. If you want to hear more, check out the audiobook at Storytel.nl. And if you want to buy the book itself, you can find it at HollandBooks.nl. Arts Talk magazine provides the perfect companion to Arts Talk radio with reviews and previews in English of cultural events in Holland. Whatever you're interested in the arts, our international team of writers will always provide something new and exciting to see online. That's Arts Talk magazine, all one word, dot NL. Arts Talk magazine, dot NL. That was Greg Shapiro, and I'm afraid that's it for this comedy special. You can write a comment in the box below, or better still, follow us. We'll be back in a week or so. So, until then, it's goodbye. I'm Michael Hasted. Bye-bye.